Hi, this is Peter J. Kim on the Food 52 Podcast Network, and you're listening to Counter Jam, the show that celebrates culture through food and music. On this episode, I'm honestly not sure that celebrate is the right word because we're taking a look at Ukrainian culture, a culture that is currently under grave threat as the Russian armed forces reduce many of its cities to rubble. My guest on this episode is Anna Voloshina, a San Francisco-based Ukrainian-American chef and cookbook author. She was born in Snehurivka between Kursan and Mykolaiv, an area that is currently at the front line of the war. The music on this episode is from a band called Odymph Kanoi, which is based in Lviv in western Ukraine. I corresponded with two of the band's members, singer Irina Shvaidak and guitarist Ustim Pokmursky, as air raid sirens went off in Lviv. I will admit, I hesitated to even reach out in the first place, given the circumstances. But they wrote to me, quote, Direct connections between people these days are very important, helpful, and inspiring. As long as people around the world are talking about Ukraine, we still have tremendous support. Only in this way can we win, end quote. It is in this spirit that we wanted to do this episode. This war is a nightmare. We may try to quantify its toll in the number of lives lost, the number of neighborhoods, towns, and cities leveled, but we also need to consider the culture that is being destroyed. So this episode of Counter Jam is an homage to that culture, Ukrainian culture. And as you know, I think two of the best ways to examine any culture are through its food and music. With our guest Anna, we will go course by course through a typical festive meal in Ukraine. There's a lot of joy in what comes out, and some sadness too. And we'll listen to a few songs from Odymph Kanoi. I came across their music and was instantly captivated. Though I don't speak any Ukrainian at all, I found that the dreamy soundscapes and Ira's haunting vocals spoke powerfully to me. At times, even bringing me close to tears. The first track is called Chovan, which means boat in Ukrainian. Here's the inspiration behind the song in the words of Ira. The song Chovan translates as boat. It's based on a poem by the famous Ukrainian writer Ivan Franko. Ustem, the guitarist, added in writing that the poem's, quote, main motive is a conversation with a boat. Who are you, boat, and where are you going? Many boats have been drowned here, but who knows? Maybe you will reach the end. Here's Boat by Odin Kanoi. I povzali nevočovi, i gorkoči, i porči, vidki vzjavsi ja ne znaju, čim pridece zakinči, hvila radisnu pljuskoči, da lestice do čumna, mov dičaci kapu šepči, i rozpituje vona. Кто ты човнешь, ушукаешь, витки и куди плывешь? И зачем туди шукаешь, чтоб рубучу гоща ждешь? Бих мой вечный, тоже не знаю, пыляно в суде буря реве. Скали грозят, надят, просят к собі береги Думать, що тут жити, що питатися про ці, нині жити завтра гнити, нині страха завтра пі, кажуть, що природа мати держить нас, як їм дам трем, на в кінці мене цілого знов до себе відбере. Ти човне, що шукаєш, швидки і куди пливеш, і за чим туди шукаєш, що пробучого ще житеш, біг мій вічний, то вже не знаю, пиляно в суді буря реве, скали грозять, надять, просять к собі береги, мене. That was Boat by Odin Kanoi. My guest Anna Voloshina has a forthcoming Ukrainian cookbook called Budmo. I was lucky enough to get my hands on an advanced galley of the book. 
I read through it, and I have to say, it is exceptional. The book feels like the literary embodiment of a celebratory feast. Reading through it, you can't help but feel like you've been invited into someone's home. It makes you feel full. So we're going to use Anna's book, Budmo, as a roadmap of sorts to a festive Ukrainian meal, and we're going to do it in six parts. So let's start with part one, the opening shot of vodka. Uh, it's such a tradition to have this first toast in Ukraine. Like you need to welcome, uh, usually uh, either hostess or the host. Most of the time the host will just say something to uh, welcome the guests and thank them for coming and uh, joining the meal. We just start with vodka and end with vodka. <laughs> <It's just> like, <laughs> that's it. Because it just go... <laughs> It progressed from there. Nobody wants to stop once you start it. Right, right. So yeah, uh, we don't produce good wine in Ukraine. And uh, we're, we were a part of USSR. And uh, at some point, USSR killed the wine production. Even in Georgia, we didn't mm. have the access. We couldn't uh, get it from anywhere. And like the wine drinking culture is only started like 10 years ago in Ukraine. So vodka was always the drink of choice. And so when people are drinking vodka, is it you have the shot? Do you drink the whole shot at once or are you sipping it at all? No, 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 no sipping. We're drinking it all. That's why <laughs> it, the size matters. When you, the, when you go, just please check that the shot glass size is not humongous because everybody will expect you to finish the, the glass right away with one sip. But if it's a large one. I don't envy you, but because they will make you finish it. You, you have to do it. You just need to drink. That's it. You could say that the tradition of toasting to begin a meal is what inspired the title of Anna's cookbook. Uh, so the name of the book is Budmo. And Budmo in Ukrainian is the equivalent of cheers. And, uh, but the meaning is broader. So Budmo means let us be, and it's like, let us be healthy, let us be prosperous, let us be together and let us enjoy this moment. So which just every time you have a drink in Ukraine, you give a toast and then in the end you say Budmo, which means like, yeah, let us be together, let's enjoy the moment. Before the whole thing started in Ukraine, I wanted to show the Ukrainian hospitality and show how festive our cuisine is and uh, just kind of inspire people to go there and experience this feast themselves. And uh, it's a little bit changed right now because uh, now I want to say like, this is what we are fighting for. It's like, you come visit later, but right now we're fighting and we are protecting our culture our culinary culture, and we are nice people and we want to have our own country, have our freedom and celebrate our lives and make the world a better place. It is amazing and sad how much the concept of let us be has changed in the last few months. I hope there is a day when Ukrainians can once again gather around their family dinner tables and say budmo, but with joy in their hearts. With that hope in mind, let's return to our festive Ukrainian meal. We've done our opening shot of vodka, and now it's time to move to part two, the zakuski. We start with appetizers, which we call zakuski. This is like small bites and something to evoke your appetite and to something we usually have with our first or second shot of vodka. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, you need something vibrant to have with this vodka just to um, not feel that drunk after the first shot. Anna described what a typical zakuski spread might look like. Definitely something with uh, salo. Salo is a cured uh, lardo. So uh, it would be either thinly sliced, served uh, on a piece of rye bread with uh, some green onion on top, horseradish, uh, this like spicy horseradish paste uh, that is hot pink because it mixed with beet. So it's beautiful. So probably something like that, or maybe it's even whipped uh, lardo and mixed with garlic and herbs. And it's just so light and spreadable. Then, of course, pickles, because uh, pickles and vodka go together perfectly well. Then, uh, if it's a summertime, eggplant caviar. 
Don't ask me why they call it caviar. <laughs> I don't know. I've always wondered. It's delicious. <laughs> yeah. Me too. I don't know. It's It started in the USSR, probably because they wanted to uh, provide some caviar to people. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so they decided to do <laughs> Yeah. Uh, maybe like that. I don't know. But uh, I'm from the southern part of Ukraine and we, we have a lot of eggplants. So we serve that. And other eggplant dish might be eggplant rolls. Mm-hmm. In my book, I have them more like Georgian style with um, walnut paste. But uh, my mom would make it even simpler. So she would just fry this thinly sliced eggplants, spread some uh, homemade mayo with garlic, uh, put a slice of tomato and roll them. Yeah. So it's just uh, something like that. If it's a winter time, probably, uh, yeah, salo and uh, pickles would be the main thing. And uh, some sort of uh, maybe uh, spread, like um, zucchini spread that we can in summer and we open during winter time. To me, one of the most striking aspects of a zakuski spread is the colors. The table glows. Green chopped herbs, neon pink beets, bright orange fish roe, red peppers, purple eggplant. What a phenomenal way to start a meal. I'd like to take a moment to help set the scene for this meal because we are not enjoying it in silence. Quite far from it. Anna described the musical side of a Ukrainian feast. At first, it will be something that is popular like Ukrainian pop music. But then when people had enough vodka, they will start singing. (laughs) They will start singing some uh, Ukrainian songs that are like old. And I grew up hearing those songs. The experience is wonderful. And uh, I'm not a singer myself at all, uh, but my, my sister is. When people have enough drinks, they start thinking that they are great singers. So <laughs> this is the when the real celebration begins, when they start remembering, oh, remember this song? Do you remember the words? Let's do it. And it's just, it's, it's an amazing experience. Do you have an example of a song that's kind of like a, a classic for this part of the meal? Uh, it depends on the mood of the event, but I would say when everyone is like uh, cheerful and like want to have fun, they uh, sing Smeraka, uh, which is a song about um, a pine tree. <laughs> In case you're curious about what a Ukrainian party song about a pine tree sounds like, here's a snippet. We've toasted, we've had some zakuski, music is playing, pine tree oriented or otherwise, and we're on to part three, the Pershistravi, Ukrainian for the first course. This is usually borscht or soup or maybe kasha, Mm -hmm. and uh, they are very hearty and something that would like uh, nourish you and comfort you. If you have something like let's say Christmas, of course you will have borscht on the table because like this is a very traditional meal. But let's say for a birthday celebration, probably they will leave the borscht out, but they would bring something like uh, this uh, banosh, which kind of like polenta originated in the Carpathian Mountains. Now I, uh, having a relatively uh, dull understanding of Ukrainian cuisine, have always associated borscht with just, you know, the heavily beets-filled stew. But then I saw that there are variations on borscht and some of them don't include beets. And so uh, I wanted to ask, you know, what actually defines what is called a borscht in Ukraine? Uh, So basically your understanding is right. Everything that's red and include beets, that is borscht. The other thing, uh, we have green borscht, which does not include any beets. But it does not include any beets now, but it did before. So we used white beets or uh, or yellow beets. So right now it kind of like can go with or without uh, white beets. But before that, it still was a thing. So 
Beats are the, the star and what, what makes borscht, borscht. Every Ukrainian region has its own take on borscht. So our version from the southern part would be kind of different from what we have in the western part. Because, uh, for example, my mom always cooked green borscht and it was red. and i was like confused why do they call it green and she said of course we call it green because we have sorrel and a lot of fresh greens in it that's why it's red but since it has a lot of greens it's green and then i i got married and i went to visit my mother-in-law and she served me the real green borscht which is green and i'm like oh my god what is that she said it's green borscht i'm like why is it not red <laughs> so yes um my mom even came to visit uh and uh, she uh borrowed the recipe and she brought it home and now finally in the south of ukraine my mom makes green borscht green so there are basically three types of borscht one is traditionally red with beets, the one you all know and love. The other one is, and we make it all year long. So it's like winter, spring, summer, doesn't matter. We love and make it. Then we have this green borscht, which is full of this sorrel and spinach. And it's, uh, it needs a lot of fresh greens, which is possible only during springtime when we have this fresh sorrel. And uh, we serve it with uh, chopped egg and it's just delicious. And of course, sour cream, uh, never forget sour cream. And then we have another type, it's called borscht. We call them holodnik. It's basically not even boiled or cooked. We only use co- uh, boiled beets, so we grate them finely. We mix them with uh, kefir or buttermilk and a little bit of water. And we add a lot of crunchy, fresh uh, veggies like uh, radishes or cucumbers. And we keep it, uh, we just stir everything together, put it in the fridge for two hours to just like infuse and and all the ingredients just kind of marry and uh, come together. And then when it's so hot outside, you just uh, serve yourself like one, ball of this hot, refreshing borscht. And oh, and we also use uh, a little bit of chopped egg on top of that one. So to add some protein. And uh, yeah, so it's basically three types. Borscht's classic sidekick is smetana or sour cream. I've had a lot of borscht in my day, and I don't think I've ever contemplated the importance of that ingredient. You need to have sour cream. I I don't remember eating borscht without sour cream ever in my life, ever. So uh, probably if I don't have uh, sour cream, I would not serve borscht. I would just run to the store, get some sour cream, and then I will be <laughs> like, okay, now I can, <laughs> I can serve it. Yeah, but because it's, it's just, that's what we do. And it makes borscht so much better. It adds these layers of flavor. So I highly recommend eating borscht with sour cream. <laughs> yes. I think in the book you added this quote in there saying that uh, borscht without smetana is considered a crime against borscht. <laughs> uh, yes, <laughs> I wrote that. That's what I think. <laughs> I will have to make a mental note to never forget to add sour cream to my borscht around you. As Anna mentioned earlier, sometimes this first course could be soup, such as borscht, or it could be kasha. I, again probably myopically thought that kasha was just toasted buckwheat. Oh, it's not. How do you actually define kasha? So kasha is cooked grains. Any grains you can possibly cook, boil, sweet or savory dish will be called kasha. So buckwheat, this toasted buckwheat that is cooked, uh, it is kasha. But rice, even rice, when you cook rice, uh, I have this kasha recipe in my book with uh, pumpkin or butternut squash, also called kasha, and uh, barley with sautéed onion, uh, also kasha. So it's like a broad, broad, it's like soup. We, it's like soup and kasha. So it's like just one broad um, category. So you typically have the soup served alongside a bowl or plate of, of kasha. Oh, no, no, no. It's either or. It, uh, it's like... Aha, I see. It's usually we have this first dish, which should be either soup or kasha. 
In her book, Anna usefully notes that there is a certain flow to a Ukrainian festive meal. It typically goes from cold to hot and from lighter to heartier. It's also the case that the table is abundant. As the meal progresses, more and more plates are introduced. One staple that you'll find throughout the meal, though, is the pickle. Anna's cookbook has a chapter dedicated to pickles. We talked about pickles and how they connect to a very painful reality today. Pickles are very important in Ukraine because this is the craft which we cherish. We have all four seasons, so we need to preserve uh, our summer fruits and vegetables for longer. So we ferment them, we pickle them, we cure stuff, we like uh, drench them in oil. And like my mom came and she fried this eggplants uh, for me and then she like kind of marinated them with oil and uh, garlic and a lot of hot pepper and uh, vinegar and there's st- like I just finished them and she came like two months ago so they they keep for a long time in the fridge so we try to do a bunch of those stuff just to have something fresh during winter something vibrant and nice section in the introduction to this uh, chapter that really captivated me. And I just have to ask about it, which is you talked about your grandma's cellar and the the stairs that were so steep going down the ladder and how she kept all of her pickles there. Could you just describe for me what it was like going down into that cellar and what you, you saw? Oh, uh, this will make me emotional and I will tell you why. So that uh, cellar was such a mesmerizing place for me because you never know what you can find there. Because my my grandma, she would make like this grape juice or like canned grapes with uh, from her backyard. And it's just amazing. Or she would just uh, this make this sour eggplants and stuff like that. And you just go downstairs and it's so steep. Like I would not wish anyone to <laughs> experience those steep steps because um, I don't know what they were thinking about because they, they loaded like these boxes and boxes of uh, potatoes and apples to uh, store during winter. And uh, yeah, it's just like you just look and everywhere, every single shell is filled with stuff. And you just like and nobody labels anything like you just like I don't know why she never labeled stuff, but you just like kind of guess what you're uh, grabbing. So, yeah, she she would never let me go there alone because uh, it was dark and like you need to like go a couple of steps before you find the switch which is also a strange thing. But yeah, she would just like grab my hand, walk me down and just say like, pick whatever you want. And she would expect me to pick something like jam or like canned uh, fruit compote. But I would grab something uh, like this sour eggplants or like um, canned tomatoes or her tomato juice, which is my favorite still to this day. And uh, why it's making me emotional, because uh, right now my whole family is hiding in that root cellar from the bombs that are falling on my city. And this is like when I learned that I cried so hard because that was such a happy place for me because it was like a food heaven and full of surprises. And right now, like 10 people are sitting there hiding, which is... uh, which is not even sad. It's devastating. I'm so sorry. And um, it seems cruel to have something that was such a perfectly positive memory now twisted in this way. Yeah, um, I think it Yeah, it changed something in me. And uh, I don't know. Uh, I hope next time I will be there. It will be still as I remember it. Uh, full of amazing food, food of Pickle, uh, full of pickles and compote. And I, I really want to go back and find everything the way it was, but I'm not sure if that is even possible anymore. After Anna told me this, I had a hard time keeping my composure. I'm going to play another song for you by Odif Kanoi that, for me, captures the way that story made me feel. In Ukrainian, it's called Umenen Maya Domu. Here's Ira's explanation of the song's meaning. 
The song у мене немає дому means I have no home. Many associate this song with the people who lost their home due to Russian invasion of Ukraine in 2014. It was actual then and it is actual now because the number of Ukrainian refugees has drastically increased today after new full-scale Russian invasion. Ira referenced the Russian annexation of Crimea in 2014, which displaced at least one and a half million Ukrainians from their homes. At the time I am recording this, the 2022 invasion has already displaced at least 10 million Ukrainians, nearly a quarter of the country's population. Here is I Have No Home by Odev Kanoi. Up next, we'll continue our Ukrainian feast and we'll hear from Anna and Ira about their wishes for Ukraine's future after this. recap our Ukrainian feast so far, we've had our vodka, our zakuski, and a big bowl of borscht, with sour cream of course, and the table is brimming with dishes. Now it's time for part four, the drugi stravi, or the second course. My favorite main course is my grandma's roasted duck, which is amazing, and for every single occasion, like every celebration, or even like a festive dinner, my grandma would make her uh, roasted duck with apples. And uh, you always need some kind of like standout dish on the table, like big protein. You need to have meat on the table because this is something that's saying we are celebrating here. Uh, Because Ukraine was mostly vegetarian 100 years ago. We ate mostly vegetarian diets because meat was too expensive. So always when there is a celebration, something like meaty should be on the table. Of course, I had to ask Anna to elaborate on her grandma's roasted duck. First of all, my grandma has her own ducks. So the duck is coming from her backyard. So she would go in the morning and uh, get the duck. So it will be like chop the neck and like clean the whole bird. So it's super fresh. And uh, she would just 
take this one uh, and cook it in this heavy, uh, we call it kazanok. I'm not sure if that's the correct term, but it's like heavy uh, oval Dutch oven. And uh, she would layer the apples underneath the duck, uh, rub the duck with salt and uh, some spices, uh, black pepper inside and out, and just cover the this Dutch oven and roast the duck. Uh, and then before, like, I don't know, 30 minutes before it's done, she just would take the lid uh, off and just uh, brown the duck and make sure the uh, skin is golden and beautiful. And these apples, we always serve alongside of the duck because they are tired and they provide this complexity. And it's just uh, sometimes, sometimes instead of apples, she would put the layers of uh potatoes so they would soak the duck fat and just like so good but and of course after uh the whole duck is done she would rub it with a fresh uh, clove of garlic so it's just like the aroma is insane that is such a good move and i i love i mean i often roast my birds with uh, potatoes underneath but the idea of using apples is a really nice one. Yeah. Those apples must be so delicious. Yeah, so it's like kind of you're making a um, sauce almost for the duck because you can puree the apples and you can serve it. Or I, I don't even bother. I just serve the apples in a separate bowl. That's it. Just like take take some. I don't even puree it. In Anna's childhood, the ingredients for a meal like this didn't come from a supermarket. Grandma had her own ducks, for example. The rest would come from the market known in Ukraine as the bazaar. Oh, it was my favorite activity when I was a kid. We would just grab a couple of uh, baskets like this. I don't know why they were so heavy. And don't ask me, but they were so pretty. This like made, uh, I don't know, it's like uh, willow baskets. They're incredibly pretty. And we would go there and we would start with the midsection. She still knows where the best uh, sour cream is. <laughs> so we don't buy sour cream uh, in the supermarket. You go to the uh, bazaar and you get it there from um, local people. And I love it so much because you feel this connection to the ingredient and everything was local. Everything was local. And people even sold their own pickles. And mom would just let me pick uh, what we will buy home because I was like a pickle connoisseur. <laughs> I, I loved everything pickled and fizzy and sour. So yeah. And, and we would just go with, uh, every, uh, Saturday and sometimes Sunday because our meat vendor could come on Saturday or Sunday, just one day. So we just like, we would visit a couple of times and you always bargain like for everything. You don't pay the full price. You need to negotiate. Right, right. Uh, and my mom and grandma, they always did this. Oh, this this costs five dollars, uh, for example. How about four? <laughs> like, right. <laughs> this is like this tradition. And my grandma, she is amazing. She can get the lowest price right. possible. Um, I didn't inherit that. <laughs> I'm the worst <laughs> in my family. So... <laughs> Don't ask me to negotiate anything, but they, they're still doing that. I asked Anna about one ostensibly Ukrainian dish from my childhood. I realized that actually my exposure to, well, so-called Ukrainian cuisine, what happened when I was a kid. I grew up in the Midwest in the U.S. in sort of a small town. And we used to always get these frozen chicken things that were called chicken. Uh, well, that back then I call it chicken Kiev, of course, I don't know if it has any resemblance to Kiev or anything that actually happens in Ukraine, but these would be uh, frozen chicken with like butter inside that you would heat up in the microwave and then it comes out. And it was actually quite delicious, frankly, um, because, well, it's like breaded chicken with butter inside. But I was curious to know, is there any actual relationship between that and food you could find in Ukraine? Oh, this is one of the famous dishes in Kiev and in the whole Ukraine. Of course. Yes, this is a legit dish. Okay, okay. <laughs> so I was actually learning about Ukraine even as a child. <laughs> yes, definitely. So, yeah, that was um, one I, I loved so much, but I like it like when it's freshly made. I cannot imagine defrosting it and like, like heating in the microwave. I just love the crispy uh, crust. And then you cut it and the herby butter just like flows. It's so good. 
On to part five of our meal, the bread and vareniki, Ukraine's take on dumplings. And then dumplings and crepes and uh, pastries, like savory pastries most, mostly, because yeah. they're, they can appear anytime during the meal, but Oh, yes. <laughs> so like at least 12 dishes should be on the table when we have guests around. Now, when you say that they can appear anywhere in the meal, does somebody just pop out and say, Varniki surprise, like <laughs> here it is. <laughs> like when do they, when can it come in? <laughs> they can arrive before the main course or after the main course. It's just like, it's just there because it's our culture. I don't know. My grandma would magically appear with a, like this huge ball of uh, vareniki. And what she does, she just toss them in the air. And I tried to do it recently and I was so scared. I almost lost one. But yeah, I decided like I need more experience with that. And is this just a show off or was she tossing it with something? No, I no, it's just something that everybody does. They have like this huge bowl and when they pour butter, they just want to toss them to mix them with butter. And they go like literally up in the air. Yes, yes. And oh, wow. they need to catch them back. Uh, they don't use spoons for some reason. I don't know. My mother-in-law do the sa- does the same thing and she lives in like across the whole country. So this is the, the thing everybody does. <laughs> okay, I like it. A certain sort of uh, a sense of spectacle with the, with the dumplings. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I need to learn this skill because I'm not good and I need a bigger bowl for sure. Varaniki is up there with borscht as a food that is beloved across Ukraine. I think like with borscht, every region has uh, its own specialty, Varenike specialty. And uh, in our region, in the south, we have a lot of sour cherry trees. So every summer we would make this sour cherry Varenike like every week or even often, a couple times a week. So we are very big on uh, sour cherry dumplings. And I always tell the story that when I came here, I couldn't find sour cherries because it's only sweet, dark cherries. And uh, if you are lucky and you can find like a little bit of the sour cherries, they're so expensive. I cannot even put them in dump- into dumplings <laughs> because it doesn't make sense. But uh, the sour cherries are so uh, deeper in flavor and they're so nice and the texture is softer. So they're perfect for dumplings. Uh, So this is what uh, my mom makes often. And this is my husband's favorite type of dumplings. So, uh, of course, when we go visit, my mom would make a bunch for him. My mother-in-law, she's super big on dumplings. Every time we go, she makes at least three kinds of dumplings. And she's from the western part of Ukraine. Something that she makes and I never had in my life before I visited her kitchen is um, the savory Uh, dumplings stuffed with uh, farmer's cheese and uh, she serves them with a fried pork belly. So she cuts the pork belly and fries fries it until it's crispy. So she dresses it with this uh, pork belly fat and uh, these crispy bits of pork belly, which is so delicious. And another of her specialties um, is uh, this uh, sauerkraut varenki. So she uh, she makes her sauerkraut herself, of course, and then she cooks it uh, with uh, a, a bunch of uh, onion. So she saute and uh, she cooks the sour, uh, sauerkraut until it's very deep in flavor and it's almost like golden in color because it's usually very pale. And then it's just like gets deeper and deeper in, in color and flavor. And she stuffs this um, cooked sour uh, sauerkraut into dumplings. And it's also so so delicious. (laughs) And we usually serve our dumpling, savory dumplings, either with uh, sautéed onions, like this deep uh, golden, uh, almost caramelized onions. Most of the time we do that, actually, or butter. But personally, I prefer uh, onions. I I love it with onions. I think it just like complements the flavor so much. And uh, other parts of Ukraine, we have like uh, dumplings with poppy seeds, which is amazing. And on the uh, northern part of Ukraine, when I went to visit um, my friend's mom, she uh, cooked steamed dumplings for me, which I didn't know even a thing in Ukraine because in our region, we, we never make them. 
But then I realized, oh my God, this is such a great thing. And they stuffed them with sweet uh, farmer's cheese or with um, mixed berries or even mulberries. Mulberries are my favorite. Well, it's definitely one of my favorite fruits. And it's funny because most people in the U.S. don't really eat mulberries, which is so strange to me because they're so good. They're so good. And we have them growing yeah. outside, like on the street. So you can just go up and just take as, as much as you want. And then, of course, uh, in all these regions, as you said, the dumplings get tossed table side with, uh, with butter yeah. and flying in the air. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Between the sheer number and complexity of the dishes to the showmanship of tossing Varaniki in the air, I got the sense that the women in Anna's family cooked with an immense amount of pride. It turns out that this pride meant you had to earn your stripes to get in the kitchen. Fun fact, uh, my family never let me cook when I was living with them because <laughs> oh, wow. women in my family are so bossy. They're just like, oh, no, we can handle it. You just sit here and watch. So I just sit there. I I memorized every, everything. I memorized so many recipes. And the only task my grandma would let me do is arrange dumplings. So she would make them, she would roll them. Somebody would stuff them. And I was the only one who was like, okay, you will now arrange them. <laughs> so, but then after I got married, they finally accepted me to this uh, <laughs> cooking club. And now I can cook with them finally. Wow, it's like a secret society. Probably, yes. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. At that time, I was like, okay, I will just sit here and eat. Uh, I don't mind. And now I'm like, okay, I'm, I want to cook. What can I do? How can I help? And either when I go there or when my mom ha uh, come here, we, we, has, we have this uh, tradition to make dumplings, make chibureki, and uh, of course, borscht. Borscht is like, is a must. This brings us to part six of our Ukrainian feast, dessert. We are not big on desserts every day. Like, so we don't eat desserts uh, after our dinners, but we have this culture on serving desserts with tea after the festive meal. So my favorite one, of course, is honey cake. I love, love, love honey cake. It's so funny, um, Anna, that you're mentioning these things because in my notes I have here, ask about honey cake. <laughs> because in your in your book, you have a recipe for what's called glorious honey cake. Yeah. And for me as a reader, when I see a recipe named that way, I just go straight to it. And it so happens I love honey cake, too. Uh, so I'd love for you to tell me the story actually of that particular recipe. Why is it called the glorious honey cake? Uh, <laughs> because I wanted to specify how amazing this recipe is. So this is not my recipe. This recipe comes from my dear friend from Ukraine. She lives here and she is my partner in crime. She is my pastry chef for all the pop-ups I do. And this kind of honey cake, I still have a slice in my fridge after our Sunday dinner, I still have it. And I like, I didn't want to take anything home but the slice of honey cake. I don't know. She puts a pinch of magic probably to, to every <laughs> honey cake because it's so good. And it's like uh, layers and layers of this uh, honey cakes plus sour cream frosting plus some um, prunes that are soaked in uh, cognac or sometimes even vodka. And they're so, uh, so delicious, sweet and uh, soft. And then we finish the cake with a layer of uh, toasted uh, hazelnuts, which is absolutely delicious. And I tasted a bunch of honey cakes and hers is the best I've ever had. That's why it's glorious because like honey cake is my favorite dessert. And every time I see it somewhere, I order it, but nothing can match that honey cake. Like no match. Uh, so is there a theory as to what makes... Other than the magic, is there anything else you can think of that makes this honey cake really particularly special? Uh, I think it's in the technique. And she, before you make this batter for the uh, cake, you need to uh, cook your honey and to make it like caramelized and brown. And I think Hala does the best job in like uh, caramelizing it until it's just perfect. And it's it tastes very, very, very deep and so delicious and very complex. So I think that's her secret. And of course, she makes this 
super light sour cream frosting is just like like a cloud, oh. like a cloud of sour cream. <laughs> it's amazing. One of my mottos is that food is culture. The Ukrainian meal that Anna took us through is a perfect example of this. Behind all the dishes, the hospitality, the singing, the vodka, lies centuries of tradition. And while it was a pure joy to speak with Anna about these rich layers of culture, it was also bittersweet. These beautiful traditions are literally being destroyed. It was interesting to read your book in the context of what's happening now because you talk about Ukraine sitting between Europe and Asia and Russia and how that's both made it kind of a crossroads of culture, but also a prized target for invading powers. And of course, Ukraine has had a lot of um, powers sort of intervene over the its history. And, um, and in some cases, um, it's had a kind of destructive effect on the culture. That's something that like for me personally, as an outsider looking in is something that, and you know, I worked in museums too. And it's something that just devastates me is the idea of uh, Ukrainian culture being lost, you know, through this. Um, I mean, Ukrainian people, first and foremost, but of course, with the people, the culture. And I, I saw I, I saw a photo this last weekend um, that, you know, I'm sure a lot of people have seen of the statue in Odessa and people putting all these sandbags up around it. Mm-hmm. And um, here I'm getting choked up again just talking about it, but. It's just, um, it's so symbolic, you know, that there's trying to essentially defend this culture. And the, to me, it was really um, touching to just see that people would actually take the time to stack up all those sandbags in the middle of a war um, to defend the statue. And, and so I don't know. I mean, I, is that something that's on your mind right now? Is just like um, how the culture is also being affected by this? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh What's happening in Ukraine right now is unspeakable and uh, we have no choice but to win because if we lose, we will lose our country, we will lose our freedom and we will lose our culture. No matter how much they will say, oh, we are, we're so similar. Yeah, we have our similarities with Russians, but we have our own history, our own country, we have our own language. And uh, why should we give it up? For, for who? We, we want to protect it. We love our culture. And I've never seen my country so united ever. I feel like everyone is fighting right now. Everyone is doing uh, whatever they can. I always say this, um, if we will lose, I will be the one who will keep this culture here. And I don't want that. I want to be the one who helps the cult, the culture flourish and the cuisine. And I want to see a Michelin guide coming to Ukraine and uh, praising our restaurants. I want to see our chefs competing uh, around the world and winning uh, bakus or uh, writing amazing books and using modern techniques and uh, developing our cuisine. I don't want to preserve it. I want to develop it. And of course, telling stories and digging into history and like, telling these amazing uh, stories of amazing dishes that, yes, of course, I don't want to say, oh, when I was young, we had this and not anymore. No, we need to win and we need to protect. And that's what we're doing right now. I asked Ira if she had a message to share with our listeners. As Ukrainians, we would like to share our music with the world. We know that people in other countries may not understand the lyrics, but we believe that the music will help you to feel that our songs are about love to each other and fighting for justice. As you all know, Russia has brutally invaded us with no reason. Literally, we are fighting for our existence as a nation. We want to ask all the people who are listening to us now to spread the truth about Ukraine, to support Ukrainian people. Your support brings us closer to victory. And sooner we win, less people will die. Anna also had a similar message to share. What's happening? You need to know that people are dying. Civilians are dying. I think we lost more, like, so much more civilians than we lost our military guys. Uh, it's yeah. it's terrible and it's awful and it should never happen again in any country. Like, this is unspeakable. 
so this is first of all. Secondly, if you want to support or donate, please do so. We have wonderful organizations. You can donate to UNICEF. You can donate to World Central Kitchen. This is my personal favorite organization. And uh, I just pray that my country will win and someday you can go and visit. And I'm sure you will be uh, entertained and you will eat amazing food. And I want to see my country flourished and rebuilt. And that's what will happen. So we will win. This last song by Odif Kanoe is called Ikone. Here is Ira's explanation of the song's meaning. Ikone or Holy Icons is about young, talented Ukrainian writers and painters of the 1960s who were repressed by USSR communists due to their desire for a free, independent Ukraine. Here is Holy Icons by Odemf Kanoi. Thank you all for tuning into this episode of CounterJam. Drop us a line at hello at counterjam.com and please visit counterjam.com slash Ukraine where we've gathered links to different ways you can support Ukraine relief. As Anna mentioned, UNICEF and World Central Kitchen are two good options, though there are many worthy causes. Thank you to my guest, Anna Voloshina. I encourage you all to pre-order her book, Budmo, by visiting rizzolibookstore.com. That's R-I-Z-Z-O-L-I bookstore.com. 10% of your purchase will go toward Ukraine Relief. Thank you to Odinv Kanoi for the deeply moving music. The songs are available on many streaming services, and I've also added them to the CounterJam playlist on Spotify. Thank you to Food52, Crutch Phrase Studio for the sound editing, and Harry Sultan, CounterJam's talented producer. I'm Peter J. Kim, and I will catch you on the next episode of CounterJam. Yeah.